0: 4 through, I forgot to fill it in. It's going to be 4 through 8. So that's going to be our text this evening, Revelation 1, verses 4 through 8. So let's see how everything works tonight. Everybody ready? Ready. All right. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. and has made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him, even so. Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, The beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Because the nature of the book of Revelation is primarily prophetic, it would be good for us to realize and to understand some of the significant markers that help us to keep the focus of our study on that which is to come. We have to take into consideration every sign, every symbol, every statement that uh, strengthened the foundation of the evidence we're given to rightfully discern and divide God's Word faithfully. Take for example the number seven, for it indeed plays a tremendous role in our grasping of the spiritual and literal truths we find in Revelation. Scholars who seek to understand the The deep meanings in the text of Revelation often speak and write about the heptatic structure of the revelation of Jesus Christ. A heptad, and it comes from the word heptad, H-E-P-T-A-D, just simply means a group or series of sevens. The heptatic structure the scholars speak of in Revelation pertain to the great number of groupings of sevens in the book. In all, there are about 52 sevens in the book of Revelation, such as these. Let's kind of take a look at them. It mentions the the book of Revelation. Those are the heptads, by the way, the sevens, the groups of sevens. mentions seven churches, which is what we're going to be dealing with in a couple of weeks. We'll be dealing with uh, chapters 2 and 3, which deal with the seven churches. And then there are going to be the judgments, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, seven bowls, the, the, the book of Revelation mentions seven lampstands, mentions, as we've already touched on last week, seven spirits. And then there are seven lamps mentioned, seven promises to the overcomer, which are, by the way, those seven blessings we mentioned two weeks ago. And then there are seven horns when we start looking at the, uh, the more of the uh, uh, symbolic issues in, in the book of Revelation. Uh, there are seven eyes mentioned, there are seven angels mentioned, seven thunders, 7,000 slain men, seven heads, seven crowns, seven plagues, seven mountains, a whole lot of sevens here, and seven kings. Well, I've already mentioned the seven blessings, as I said, or the Beatitudes of the book of Revelation, but there are also seven I Ams, or seven I am statements made by Jesus himself in the book of Revelation. There is, as I have up there already, Revelation 1 verse 8, where Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Down in verse 11, it says, I am Alpha. And Jesus said, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it into the seven churches. We'll get into that later. And then there's Revelation 117, where at the end of the verse it says, Fear not, I am the first and the last. In the next verse, verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Even though there's two I am's in there, it really signifies one I am of the whole in that uh, particular verse you have to jump all the way down to chapter 21 for the next one in verse 6 it says and he said unto me it is done I am Alpha and Omega the beginning and the end and then in chapter 22 is verse 13 I am Alpha and Omega the beginning and the end the first and the last and then in verse 16 I Jesus it says have sent my angel to testify unto these things in the churches I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright." and the morning star. Seven I Am statements of Jesus. Now, I mention all of this because seven is the number of completion. The Lord God created the heavens and the earth in six days and then rested on the seventh day because His work was completed. What book is that? The book of Genesis, right? So there in the book of Genesis was the beginning of everything, in the book of Revelation, is the completion of everything. And the number seven, again, is is a number dealing with God's completeness and God's completing of things. It is appropriate that sevens are prominent in the book of Revelation simply because it is the book in the Scriptures that gives us the completion of God's plan for the human race. Everything that began in Genesis is consummated and accomplished In the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the first heptad, the first sevens, or the first group of sevens, is the seven churches. So go back to verse 4 now. And it says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now, if you'll jump over to verse 11, because we need to also mention, uh, the churches there in verse 11, because here we're given the names of the churches. Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, this is one of the I am statements. I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, he's speaking to John, what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches, which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, Unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Now, we need to get a little bit of a picture of where these churches lie as far as geographically. So, you'll notice, I actually have one of these little laser things here. Yeah, high tech. (laughs) By the way, there's Patmos. That's where John is writing the letter from, right? That's where he received the revelation while he's in exile. And you'll notice that from Patmos, we see the churches now in order. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. I'll do it for you guys on this side. There's Patmos. Goes, here's, the, here's, what, here's the direction of the letter. And it goes to those seven churches. Now, to know where that is, again, geographically, I've given you a little bit of a, kind of a confusing uh, map here. But here's here's the seven churches. Do you all see that? See? No? Maybe so? Okay. So there's the seven churches. Notice the, uh, the order again. Patmos is uh, right in that little area there. But notice, here's the Aegean Sea. If you know anything about uh, the Eastern Europe, or at least... Uh, uh, the Europe that's connected to the Mediterranean. Here's Athens, so what is that? Greece, right? And then below Greece is Crete, there. And then, of course, you come along this way. This is all uh, western Turkey, uh, which is where the churches are. Turkey extends all the way this way. And notice over here, Seleucia, Syria, and Antioch, which is, of course, Syria. And you come all the way down to Nazareth, Jerusalem. There's Nazareth and Jerusalem. So you get an idea of where we are on the geographic map. Those are where the seven churches are. Well, the only thing I'll say about the seven churches today is, again, that they were in this particular region known as present-day Western Turkey. And when we get to chapters 2 and 3, we will learn more about their identity and their character. But uh, presently, what's happening with them now as far as our understanding is concerned? Presently, I want you to notice that this is one letter that is written to all of the seven churches. This is one letter written to all of the seven churches. Now that is the letter itself, the complete letter of the book of Revelation. Now each church is spoken of individually But, remember, this is a whole letter, the book of Revelation, so it's for all the churches to understand. And this is so important for us, because this is a clue. This is a clue that uh, there is more going on than Jesus just simply addressing seven local churches. It's more than just that. And here's another clue that we need to take from this understanding. These were not even prominent churches You'd expect the Lord to write to the church of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a prominent church. You'd think that Jesus would write a letter to the church of Antioch. That was a very prominent church. But here we are. Ephesus. Ephesus was somewhat prominent as far as the grouping is concerned because that was the church where Timothy went, that Paul sent Timothy to, the church in Ephesus. Uh, but when you think about it, there were small churches in this area. They, they weren't prominent whatsoever, uh, at least overall. So I'll just simply say that the letters to the churches have at least four meanings, which I'll expand upon a little later. Uh, they have a, they have four different applications a provincial or what we can call a local application. In other words, to those individual churches. Uh, there is a present application for all of them. Uh, There is a personal application for each of them, but importantly for all of them and for the church in general, there is a prophetic application. There is a prophetic application. We'll get back to that kind of understanding uh, when we get to chapters 2 and 3. Now, we we spoke last time of the source of the blessings of grace and peace. Remember that uh, there in verse 4 is actually the greeting given to the churches. And always the common greeting was, grace and peace be unto you. Or as it's in the King James, grace to you and peace. And the source of the blessings, as we mentioned last time, were the, the, really was the triune God, the one God in three persons. The Godhead, the Trinity as it were, the Father, the, uh, the eternal God who is timeless. It, it describes Him as being which is, which was, and which is to come. The, the Holy Spirit is signified by His seven characteristics or virtues. And it talks about the seven spirits, but it's really one spirit, uh, you know, that is part of the Godhead, which is, of course, one God. Uh, and then from Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, God the Son, the faithful witness, as He has described, the one who speaks... And who represents the truth. This is all just review from last week. Now let's consider for just a moment the greeting, because we didn't spend a whole lot of time on the greeting, and we need to spend a little time on it. Uh, Grace to you and peace was such a common greeting that we may not think about how remarkable and noteworthy it is to be able to say it. For them to say grace to you and peace, it should take us back to the understanding that we are totally undeserving of being saved. Think about that when you hear the word grace. What is grace? How do we define grace? How do we always define grace in our Bible studies whenever we see the word? The word charis in the New Testament, which is the Greek term for grace, charis. We always identify it as what? As undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. You're blessing people with undeserved favor when you write grace to you. And why is that important? Because, you see, we are sinners by nature and by choice. But God has saved us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So it is a reminder, you see. It is a reminder of what Christ has done for us. Peace is what we can therefore experience as human beings. Because of God's grace... Peace is what we can experience as human beings, for we are at peace with God and can have the supernatural peace of God as our companion in the turmoils of this life. And I can tell you this, the church had a lot of turmoils in its earlier stages during the first century and all the way through the second, third, and fourth centuries. But it doesn't just go into just being everything was great and cool then as we think it might be now the church goes through its turmoil still today there are places where the church is being completely persecuted for faith in jesus christ And even though we see some things happening in our country today that, you know, there's so many attacks on the church and so many attacks on Jesus and the name of Jesus and the Bible and so many attacks on on God and on Christianity and all of that. You know what? We still can meet like we're meeting today. And we should be thankful for that. We should be thankful. And God has blessed us as a nation. Though we may be struggling, you know what? Christ is still on the throne. So always remember that. We have peace that the world doesn't have. Even Jesus said, my peace I give you. My peace. The world cannot give it to you. No matter what kind of peace the world tries to to manufacture. Because that's all they can do. In between all of their wars and all of their rumors of wars and in between all of the struggles and trials that everybody goes through, guess what? They try to manufacture peace, but it'll never work because they don't know the Prince of Peace, who is Jesus Christ. If you know Him, you have His peace. And you need to rest in that peace. You cannot have the peace of God until you have the grace of God. The grace of God is his undeserved favor when you have it you have his peace. So now up here on the board we're going to look, talk about grace. As the favor of God's uh, the favor and blessings of God. Grace tells us that God takes an active role in our lives. Grace undeserved favor tells us that he looks after and takes care of us. Grace Make sure that we know that He provides all good and beneficial things of life for us. And grace tells us that we don't deserve it, but He loves us anyway. And aren't you thankful for that? And what about peace? You know, when you consider the the definition of peace, especially biblical peace, you have to begin with this thought. Peace is the conflict between God and us being over. The conflict between God and us is over. And guess what? He won. He won the victory over our heart. But guess, guess what else? We're the recipients of His blessings when we win. Peace tells us that we no longer have to feel that God is far from us. What was that cry in our hearts before we came to Jesus? Where are you, God? If you're really there, Lord, where are you? Show yourself to me. I said, okay. And when he did, he gave us peace. Men no longer have to be divided, separated, and discriminated against. That's what peace does between men. Men no longer have to fight, war, steal, and kill each other. Why? Because we know the Prince of Peace. We're at peace in our hearts. And we can have peace with God and with each other. Consider, if you will, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Beautiful passage here. But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us even even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ by grace. Ye are saved and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us, through Christ Jesus. Think also of Philippians 4, verse 7. It says, And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So getting back to our text now in Revelation, John continues to give Jesus praise by giving more descriptions of him. So let's look at verses 5 and 6 now. Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6. It says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, of course, this is, you know, this is the completion of his statement of the source of our blessings being the triune God, Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. And the prince of the kings of the earth. And by the way, the ruler, literally the ruler of all things. The ruler of all things. But then he says, unto him. And I underline this because I want you to underline it. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests unto God and his father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever amen if if you've studied the gospel of john at any time and i hope you have you'd know that john liked to refer to himself as the disciple whom jesus loved and this was a very real concept for john the love of god And the love of Christ. It was a real concept because he not only experienced the love of Christ as he saw the ministry of Christ go out to the world. It was the kind of love that he experienced directly from Jesus to him. You know, in that scene where the disciples are reclining against each other uh, there at the uh, uh, in, in john chapters thirteen fourteen through the throughout that uh, passover supper before Jesus is arrested and taken to the cross you you see some mention of, of 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 the disciple whom jesus loved who who would who who leaned against the the very breast of Jesus and and, and this 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 is the these are the things that that john remembers throughout the time that God is is anointing him through the power of the Holy Spirit and and, and inspiring him to write the gospel and, and the three letters that he wrote as well as the book of Revelation. And you have to realize the importance of the love of God and the love of Jesus Christ directly. That this is why we see the mention of it. So much in John's writings, because it was a very real concept to him. He saw up close, you see, that Jesus uh, was—he saw just what Jesus was like and what he was all about. This is what Jesus was all about: love one another. Because I have loved you. On that night that Jesus was betrayed, he he himself said to his disciples. In John 15:13, "Greater love hath no man than this that a man laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus did that, didn't he? He laid down his life for his friends. But shortly before he said this, while they were gathering for the Passover supper, it is written by John in John 13, verse one. Now, he says, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, notice this, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. He loved them unto the end. Folks, don't forget that about Jesus. He loved them to the end. Which means that before he goes to the cross... And we see all of the bumblings that the disciples were doing when they didn't know what was happening when Jesus was arrested. And then they all but scattered and left Jesus alone. The only time we see anybody come out of their, uh, out of their shell, so to speak, or out of their hiding place, so to speak, it was John at the cross with Mary. But up until the end, the end is really not just uh, the end of the Passover supper or the end of, of the night or the end of the day. It was to the very end, He loved them. Even through their faults, even through their, their failure, failures and their falterings, He loved them to the end. We have to understand this about Jesus. And we have to understand this about the God that we love and the God that we serve. Because too often we we see pictures of God as if He's some some mean authoritarian guy that looks down. And every time we make a mistake, we just, you know, He just bounces us. Like we used to do, you know, with bugs when we were kids. You know, do that. Yeah. You know, have this big thrill, you know, to kill bugs. I think I've told you the fact that I used to, I couldn't stand spiders, especially black widows, you know, so. In the summer, they always came out, in the, and we had alleys. Anybody have an alley? Still live with? a, a house with an alley? Some of you do. I, <laughs> we used to have alleys, you know. And we'd go through the alleys with all the friends, you know, in the neighborhood. And we would carry a flashlight and, and a can of, uh, you know, that lighter fluid, Ronson lighter fluid, and, and matches. And, man, we'd find them. Everybody, knows, strike your matches. One, two, three. Bush, and then, yeah, you know. And we think that God's like that. But that's not the Lord. And this is where legalism comes from. You know, legalism is this idea that, you know, we have to to make ourselves look good for, you know, uh, better than everybody else. And if they're not up to our standard. No, no. You know what? None of us get up to God's standard. Not one of us. Okay, enough stories about spiders. He loved his own and he loved them to the end. You must understand this in the book of Revelation. In his first letter to the church, John also wrote this. In 1 John 3.16, that's pretty easy to remember. It's not just John 3.16, this is the first letter of John. But 3.16, I think it's pretty good to keep together. It says, Hereby perceive we. This is how we know, in other words, the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But, but the first part is underlined there for you to realize. We, uh, this is how we know the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us. That's how we know. This is how we know love. If we really want to understand love, that's how we know love. And I, and I want you to consider this. Unto him that loved us. That's the statement there in our text. Unto him that loved us. In verse 5 at the end. Unto him that loved us. I want you to notice something. It is in the past tense. Do you, you all see that? Are you English majors? It's in the past tense. Not as some of the more modern translations have this phrase in the present tense. Because some of them say, you know, as he loves us. Well, he does love you. But that's not the way it's written. It's written in the past tense for a reason. And the reason is... The reason that it is so significant is because it causes us to look back at the cross. It causes us to look back at the cross. Because that was the ultimate demonstration of love. That was the ultimate demonstration of love. And even the Apostle Paul in Romans 5 verse 8, would say, but God commendeth His love toward us. In other words, but God demonstrated His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, it is excellent for us to see unto Him that loved us. I mean, there is no greater proof of God's love for us than the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, let me just mention that many believers today are insecure. Listen carefully to me. Many believers today are insecure when it comes to knowing the love of Jesus towards them. And all because they are looking to their present circumstances to measure His love. And again, this is where a lot of legalism comes from. We consider our own present circumstances, and if our present circumstances isn't measuring up, God just doesn't love me. God's not going to love me until I can correct my present circumstance. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Unto Him that loved us. He loved us before, and He loves us by the way. He loves us to the end. What they need to do is to look back at the cross for it is there that the issue was settled once and for all to Him who loved us. And so praise Jesus for that with all your heart. You ever come into this place wondering why should I worship? Why should I praise God? Why should I even sing? Because He loved you and gave Himself for you. Isn't that a wonderful reason to give praise unto the Lord? It's even better when you get here on time. I love you guys. I do. I really do. I know it's hard on Wednesdays. But Sundays, come on. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Lord, don't get me out of this trouble now. Okay. Right. I want you to consider the last phrase of verse 5. Let's go to... Let's see. There you go. The last phrase now. And he washed us from our sins in his own blood. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. I want you to notice the order. Notice the order. He loved us first and then he washed us. Do you not think that's significant? It's very significant. He didn't wash us first so that He could love us. You ever take something old that you used to have, uh, you know, in your possessions and you know it got old and rusty or maybe just old and dusty and whatever other usty it might have been and you get it out and you when you look at it you say oh I used to I used to love that thing but look at it now it's so ugly and dirty and yucky and blah, blah 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 but then you you just take the time to take it out and you start you know, you taking the dust off of it and cleaning it off, whatever it is. But, but the, then you start polishing it a little bit or, or just make it, you know, revitalizing it, you know, with something that you get, you know, from TV only, you know, the stuff that you can send and they'll give you double if you just give them a sh- shipping and handling and all of that. And then, but, but then you, you get it all prettied up and then you say, oh, I love this thing now more because I cleaned it up. That's not disorder. He loved us first. He loved us in our dirty state. And then he cleansed us from the deep stain of sin. He loved us in our dirty state. And then he cleansed us from the deep stain of sin. And he washed us clean in his own blood. Uh, Oh, the imagery. Hard sometimes to fathom it. To wash us in His blood meant the ultimate sacrifice of the sinless sinless Lamb of God. Jesus came to be a sacrifice for our sins. That's what what we need to understand here. God, you know, God did give a strange commandment to His people that they were never to eat blood. And and there was good reason In, in Leviticus 17 verse 11, by the way. There was good reason why he said that it, we were never to eat uh, blood, because he says, for the life of the flesh, he says, is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Life goes all the way back to the book of Revelation, doesn't it? it? All goes all the way back to chapter 3, when man sinned, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was God who had to take an animal and slay the animal to get the skins off of the animal so that He could place the skins of the animal upon the sinful man and woman. But the implication, as I said last week, I know I'm repeating myself, but the implication is that blood was shed. And so began the understanding of sacrifice and atonement for sins. I, I talked to somebody when I was in college years ago. And I remember sharing the, you know, sharing the Lord with them and, and, and you know, going through the scriptures and trying to witness to them and... And they said, well, you know, I, I would like, I, I would like to, to know Jesus and all of that. But you know what? Every time, I, every time I look at the Bible, it always talks about blood. It's just too bloody. I just said, praise the Lord. And you better praise the Lord. Because, you know, without that blood, you have no hope. And, and, and you have to get out of your mind that we're not talking I tell you what what do people think about evangelical churches do you, they think that we come in here and we slay you know sheep just because we believe in the blood of Christ <sighs> Dull, you know. but you see the Bible teaches us that man is blind man doesn't hear Because man is dead, spiritually. Do you give thanks to God for the person who told you about Jesus? To the person who shared the love of Christ with you? You need to thank God for that person that brought you to the love of Christ. And brought you to a better understanding of what Christ has done for us. This is why we are taking our time through this particular chapter. My question to you is, have you been washed from your sins. Have you been washed by the blood of Christ? Well, this is a good time to check our hearts tonight. Now, I need to let's go on. The Lord goes far beyond just loving us and washing us, alright? He goes far beyond just loving us and washing us. Because that would have been enough, don't you think? Don't you think it would have just been enough that he loved us and he washed us? But look at verse six. Oh, go get my toy. I I, I told you, Leviticus, I didn't even give you the scripture, did I? Okay, everybody go back to Leviticus. There it is. I read it to you. Now you can read it for yourself. Actually, you should be reading your Bibles. Okay. Yeah, I don't know why I'm so grouchy tonight. All right. Look at verse 6. Here we go. And has made us kings and priests unto God his Father. It would have been enough that he just washed us. Loved us and washed us. But He made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. To Him, John goes actually into a, a doxology of praise. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Because of these three things that He's done. He's loved us and He's washed us and He has made us kings and priests. Wow, that's a lot to be giving praise to God for. Anybody want to stay for another three hours? We can worship the Lord after a Bible study? All right. Three people will stay with us. All right. (laughs) Consider. (laughs) Consider that we are made God's royalty. Kings and ladies. uh, Queens. Okay. Kings and queens. Royalty. Okay. You understand the the blanket uh, understanding there. He's made us God's royalty. And he's also made us God's representative. Priests. This goes way beyond the law, doesn't it? Why? Because in the law, only certain people could be priests. But because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, because of the work of Jesus in shedding His blood for the forgiveness of men's sin, Him dying for us, dying in our place, taking upon Himself our sin, and nailing all of that and, and everything that, 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 that speaks of our sin on the cross. He has fulfilled all the law. And we're, not, we're no longer looking at an, uh, a, a priesthood of, of Aaron, but the priesthood of Melchizedek, and, and really beyond that, the priesthood of Jesus, for all who come to Christ. So, we are God's representatives as well as God's royalty. We represent God to man, and man to God. That is what we do as priests. And ladies, forgive me, but I'm not going to call you priestesses. But this is what we are as priests. We represent God to man. And we represent man to God. Are you praying for people to come to Christ? Are you praying that some people will, will, will finally have their eyes open? Because you have represented them God to them. Now you're representing them to God in prayer. But uh, the Lord has not only exalted us as kings... But he's given us open access into his presence at any time as priests. We don't need someone else to go before us. Are you getting that picture? You know, the, the Jews had the high priest. And only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. And into the holiest place. And you know, it was such a, an awesome responsibility. It was such an awesome responsibility that the priest, going into the holy of holies or the holiest place, had to had to wear at the bottom of his robe, had to wear some kind of a bell you know they, they were the, in the form of pomegranates, as scriptures tell us, but, but in, in fact, they were like bells that, that they would as they walk around in the uh, you know and, 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 and some have said that they have they had a a, a, a rope tied around their ankle. Because if, if they had entered into the holiest place uh, and, and, and done so in a sinful manner or done so in a, in a way that was against the law of God, uh, they, they, would, they would be killed in the presence of God because that's where they were in the holiest place where the, where the, where the uh, Ark of the Covenant was. And, 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 and also, uh, you know, you, if they heard a thump and no more bells ringing, you know, they just had to pull the, the, the rope to get the guy out. That's the only way they could get in. See, but you see, all of that was taken care of by Jesus when he died on the cross. Because it tells us that when he died on the cross, the veil of the temple, the veil that they had to walk through, was torn in two from top to bottom as if God himself had taken and placed his hands upon this, this veil, this curtain, and just ripped it from top to bottom. What does that give us? Access into the holy place. Because of Jesus, we can come in to the holiest place. When we talk about coming to the throne room of God, that was Jesus doing it for us, you see. So, He's given us open access at at any time. You know, we will not only rule, by the way, as kings and priests with the Lord. We will not only rule and reign with Him, but we are able to now, even now, offer our own prayers our own praises, our own worship, our own thanksgiving, and our own offerings to God. We can do it all as His kings and priests. In essence, we have been given everything to be true and sincere worshipers of God and Jesus Christ. So, this early stages of of the book of Revelation is establishing not only the person of Jesus Christ, but how we approach Jesus Christ. Today, in the 21st century, it hasn't changed. We don't, have to, we don't have to do outward things, you know, to... No, no, you know, it, it's not a matter of trying to entertain people. No, no, no. Listen, we can come right now to the throne room of God. As a matter of fact, that's where we are right now. So, give praise to God. By the way, turn to Hebrews 13, verse 15. Because it says to us here, By Him, therefore, let us... Offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. You'll notice it's underlined. I want to make a point here. That we are to worship the Lord continually. We are to offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. So as kings and priests, especially priests, then we can do that. We can offer continual praises and offerings of sacri- and sacrifices of praise unto God continually. We're not only uh, suggest; it isn't just a suggestion, it's a command really that we're to do that. Notice in First Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. It says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. By the way, that's, that's the combination. A royal priesthood. You're kings and priests. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Folks, I want to tell you something. We're, we're living in a dark world today. Some of us would probably say, you know, even after the election yesterday, oh my goodness, this world is dark it's getting dark. Yeah, well, you know what? Guess what? Welcome to the world. But guess what the Lord told us in His Word? You're to be the light of the world. So wherever you are, be the light of the world. And this is how we begin. Because we are the priesthood of God, the royal priesthood of God, and we're to show forth the praises. Are you showing forth the praises of God in your life? And are you realizing you're the light in the darkness? You've been called out of darkness, yes, into His marvelous light. But you're living in this darkness, but you're in the light. I tell you what, I love the fact that jewelers like to take a piece of black, 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 black velvet and display diamonds on it, right? You, you've seen that? Why? Why? Because the darker the background, the brighter the diamond, the more beautiful the diamond, when the light is shown on it. We are those diamonds. God's light is shining on us. But we have to be the light of the world. If we're living in darkness, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Guess what? He's the light. And he's called us to be the reflection of that light. So, it goes on in verse 10. It says, Which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. That's us. We've obtained God's mercy. Now, in verse 7 of Revelation 1, we are brought back to one of the main themes of the book. And that is the coming again of Jesus Christ and the justice and judgment which He is to execute upon the earth. So let's look at verse 7 now. Right, we're, moving, we're moving along here. Pretty good, I think. Let me see. If, yeah, pretty good? Yeah, not too bad. I do want to complete verse, uh, verse 8. Yeah, we want to get there. So, behold, He cometh with clouds... And every eye shall see Him. And they also which pierced Him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail or mourn because of Him. Even so, Amen. Now, we're given by John a command. We have been given a command by John to look carefully and to check out. Right? Look carefully. Behold. That word behold is a very powerful word in the Greek. Behold with, with, with intensity. Behold with tremendous focus. He cometh with clouds. He wants us to behold the coming of Jesus. It is something to keep before us at all times and in the eye of our mind now. Keep looking. He's coming with clouds. I got to tell you, I came to the Lord back in 1972... And uh, back then, you know, the, there were a lot of books written about the rapture of the church, and Jesus would come at any moment. I, I mean, I, it, was ex- it was exciting. And, and it was really good, too, because it really kept us focused on the Lord, man. And we just, you know, every time there was clouds here in El Paso, it doesn't happen a lot, but whenever, whenever we'd be looking, wow, look. And Jesus could come through those clouds any time. Are you crazy? No, I'm not crazy. It says right here, look. You show them in the Bible, you know. So I'm looking at the clouds funny how people, you know, we look and say, what do you see? Well, I see a rabbit. Uh, I see, you know. Remember Charlie Brown and Linus looking? What do you see? Linus would describe some great theological event, you know, from the Bible or whatever. Well, he look for Jesus, folks. He wants us to behold that coming. It's significant, by the way, that the word cometh or coming here in this verse Let's look at that in the Greek. Erkomai. Erkomai. This word cometh is in the present tense, which tells us that Jesus is on his way. Behold, he is coming. He's coming. He cometh. In other words, it's in a a tense that just says, it's happening now, he's coming. And we need to be ready for the coming of Jesus. That's why in Matthew 24, verse 42, Jesus said, Watch therefore. Keep watching. That's, that's really the understanding here. It's not just watch whenever you want to. Keep watching. For you know not what hour your Lord does come. You have to keep watching. This is speaking of the second coming of Jesus Christ, by the way, in, which, in clear distinction, by the way, from the rapture of the church. And I, uh, We're going to talk a about, lot about the rapture of the church while we're going through the book of Revelation. But this is talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And there are distinctions, by the way. Uh, but, the, for example, the rapture of the church is alluded to by Jesus in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. One of my favorite passages of Scripture. I have them all up there. So, but it's John 14, 1 through 3. It says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now remember, he's talking to believers. So he's talking to us as believers too. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. So now Jesus says, I'm coming again. But this isn't the second coming. This is a very special coming. I'm coming. He says, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. So the distinction has to do with our text in verse 7, where it says, "...He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him." Now these are very distinctive things that are written here so that we can make that uh, distinction between the second coming and the rapture of the church. So this is, here in verse 7, is more focused on the rapture, uh, I'm sorry, on the second coming of Jesus Christ because it says he cometh with clouds now this is in reference to what, has, uh, to what was promised at the ascension of Jesus in Acts he cometh with clouds now if you go to Acts chapter 1 this is when, when Jesus ascends into heaven and, and it tells us that when he spoke these things uh, while they beheld he was taken up he was caught up taken up that's uh, some understanding there about the rapture we'll talk about that later He was taken up, and a cloud, cloud, notice, received him out of their sight. And while they were looking, uh, or while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by him in white apparel, angels, of course, uh, which also said, You men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. As you have seen him go in the clouds, he's going to come with clouds. And if that isn't enough for us to understand that, back in the uh, the uh, Olivet Discourse, the sermon in Matthew 24, uh, and here again, I forgot to click you over through those verses there. All right, well, I read them to you, right? Okay, Matthew 24, verse 30. Then shall appear... The sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and this is Jesus speaking, and he says, And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. Keep that in mind, because that's another point of the second coming, which we see in verse 7 of our text. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. They, is not just reference to believers, but they, speaking of, all and we'll see that in just a moment as well because the next point is every eye shall see him every eye shall see him that's a distinction of the second coming of Jesus which by the way is after the rapture of the church we'll talk about that and and the timing of it so every eye shall see him says to us that his second coming won't be a secret everyone will know The Apostle John heard Jesus say these words again in Matthew 24, verses 26 and 27. He said, Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west. Now, when you see lightning do that out in the desert, you know, maybe between here and Carlsbad. I've seen a lot of that happen between here and Carlsbad. Anybody else seen that? Uh, Wonderful, beautiful lightning storms that go on. They're not beautiful, they strike you, but I mean, but you know, you understand what I'm saying. The, 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 the vision of it, you know, it, it just lights up the whole sky, right? That's the, that's the idea here. As the lightning comes out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. That's how every eye is going to be able to see Him. But then also add something else to that. And they also which pierced Him. We know who that's speaking of. Christ's second coming will be a meaningful revelation for the Jewish people. Though they were not alone in piercing him, by the way. But John had his own people in mind. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's reminded of Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David, and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Look at that. Prophecy. Prophetic vision of the future. And the book of Revelation coincides with that prophecy. It confirms the prophecy. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that has been bitterness for his firstborn. And so the second coming is for the Jewish people. But also, not just for them, But all the kindreds, or the tribes of the earth, all the tribes of the earth, shall wail, they shall mourn, because of Him when they see Him. Even so, amen. Some will see Him in repentance, for they'll know that their lives have been lived in such a way that They're burdened with that guilt of sin. Others will see Him because they rejected Him. And still others will see Him and receive Him. You see, every eye will see what Jesus has done for the sins of the world. For the scars shall remain visible. See, please take hold of that thought. The scars remain visible on Jesus. For all to see. Those who have been redeemed and even those who have rejected the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this brings us to the understanding of justice and judgment in verse seven of Revelation. Because in Jude verses fourteen and fifteen, and by the way, Jude is a is a one chapter letter right before the book of Revelation. But in Jude verses fourteen and fifteen, it says, And Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these sayings, of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. There will be a lot of people who have said a lot of nasty things about the Lord. Said things, done things, you know, against God, against Christ, against the things of God, against the things of Jesus, against the church and all of that. And then they're going to see Him. And then they're going to realize they had an opportunity. But as that prophecy in Jeremiah tells us, the summer is past. The harvested end is ended. And at some point people will not be saved. How tragic that is going to be because that is a an eternal Happening. It is an eternal result. But to end in a good way on verse 8, there is Jesus' introduction of himself. Now Jesus speaks. In Revelation 1, verse 8, he says, I am Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the ending, saith, the Lord which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. And I want you to notice something here. We've seen that phrase, which is, which was, and which is to come, spoken of or written about God the Father. But now we see it spoken, in essence, some people say that these are the words of Jesus as well, spoken of himself. And again, I, I encourage you to realize that the Bible teaches the deity of Jesus Christ in so many places. Yet I have heard people who are theologians and others say, Well, you know, Jesus never really said that he was deity. He does here in one verse. You know, Jesus only has to say something once for it to be true, right? He just has to say it one time. And it's true. It's said countless times. If Jesus said, I and the Father are one, and they they want to pick up stones and stone him, there in in the Gospel of John, does that not say that he knew exactly what he was saying? About himself? I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. I am the beginning and the end. In other words, I was at the beginning, I'm going to be at the ending, but I, I have no beginning I have no end. Why? Because He's eternal. He is the exact representation of the Father. Therefore, the whole of the triune God is one God, and they are, as one, eternal. So Jesus is stating that here. The Jesus of the Scriptures is Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. By the way, the Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek language. This signifies that He is the beginning and the end of all that there is. He began all things and He shall end all things. All things find their purpose, their meaning and significance in Him. Man, the world, history, it doesn't matter how chaotic and disjointed life may seem, all things are under the control of Jesus Christ. The very word used by John for Almighty. You all see that word there? Almighty? Almighty? That word is the word pantokrator in the Greek. Literally, it means the one who has his hands on everything. We sang a song tonight. I didn't tell Sean. Sing this song because it has this little reference about God's hand on us. But upon everything. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know that we sang about this before we even got to it? But the fact is, it literally means the one who has his hands on everything. In other words, Jesus Christ is omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful and almighty, and he is sovereign. And by the way, he's coming again. Aren't you glad? Yes. All right, good. I'm, I know it's late, it's getting tired. But you can give me a better a little... Yeah, okay. Yeah, whatever you say, Charlie, you know, whatever. Right. So the exhortation is clear. The exhortation is clear. We must put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ and we must cast our lives upon Him. When we do, we receive the great gift of God spoken about in verse 4. What was that gift? Grace to you and peace. We receive the grace of God's care and provision And the great gift of His peace. In the Hebrew, we all know what it is. Shalom. His wholeness. His completeness. And we become safe. And we become secure for eternity. That's how much He loved you. That's how much He loves you now. See, I I want us to understand that when we share the love of Christ with people, we need to make sure we let people know God loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son to die on a cross for you. Because if all all we ever tell somebody is, you know, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. That means he loves me no matter what condition I'm in, right? And I can do whatever I want. No, no, no. Wait a minute. He loved you so much. He died for you to take your sins because you're a sinful person. Do you see the difference? Can we understand now why it is important to see that the word loved is in the past tense? Because we have to go back to look at the cross. We become safe and secure for eternity when we understand these things. And God is allowing us to understand them as we begin our study in the book of Revelation. Let me leave you with, 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 with two passages of Scripture. First one is in John chapter 10, verses 28 through 30. And Jesus said this, he says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Isn't that a wonderful thought when you think about the fact that he's got everything in his hands and he's, he's got his hands on everything? And he's got you in his hands. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And then he says, I and my Father are one. So be secure in that. And then lastly, John 16 verse 33. These things I have spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. You know, Jesus doesn't say, you know, you might. You might just have some tribulation in your life. Oh, you know, maybe about, I don't know, 50, 65 percent. You might have a little bit of tribulation in your life. No, he says, you shall have tribulation. But, he says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I have. What is that telling you? He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He's sovereign. He is Almighty. He is eternal. And he's coming again. He's sovereign. He's ruler of all. Praise him. Love Him. Serve Him. Let's pray.